Who am I? Why am I here? All right. There was supposed to be sound with that, I promise. What it said was, who am I? What am I doing here? And that's Admiral James Stockdale. And I'm not making this up. His middle name is Bond. James Bond Stockdale. I'm definitely getting a hum. There we go. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. All right. So Admiral Stockdale was interesting to me because uh, right around the time I was able to start voting, he was the running mate for Ross Perot. But what I didn't know is that he was also a vice admiral in, uh, and an aviator. Uh, he won the Medal of Honor in Vietnam where he was a prisoner of war for seven years. And so he was actually the highest ranked held captive in Vietnam. He was also the president of the Naval War College and the Citadel. And then, of course, he went on to become the running mate for Ross Perot. And sadly, this is how James Stockdale is going to be remembered. Keely, next slide. <laughs> That is Phil Hartman, probably one of my favorite cast members from Saturday Night Live. He did a great impersonation of Admiral Stockdale, where he would go, rah, rah, where, who am I? What am I doing here? <laughs> and I just remember seeing that him with Dana Carvey being Ross Perot. I just loved the two of them together on that. But what I will say is, I hope as we move forward with this sermon series, you think of me as the former Stockdale and not Phil Hartman. <laughs> so, but Admiral Stockdale, he asks this fantastic question. Who am I? What am I doing here? And many of you are probably asking that about me right now. Who is this guy in front of you and what is he doing here? I'm not a professional speaker, and you're going to say in a few minutes after you hear me, yeah, we know. <laughs> but two, you may be asking yourself, who are you? What are you doing here? And if you're like me, that's not a simple answer. It's not an answer that you just go, oh, yeah, well, this is why I'm here. This is what I'm doing. And I just know everything there is about everything. So I know, at least from my perspective, that's how I feel and I have a feeling a lot of you feel the same way. And so what I'm going to be talking to you about today, so what I'm doing here, is one, you're going to find out more about me than I share with most people. And so I'm an elder here at this church. I was installed back in August. It sounds like I'm a refrigerator, doesn't it? I was installed as an elder back in August. But, but what I want to do is I want to talk to you about a transformation that happened in my life something that happened to me, and I thought it would be useful for you as well. So we're going to talk about spiritual transformation. It's actually in our LSE mission and vision statement. So you can see here, a partner in God's mission of love, reflecting the heart of Jesus to all people as we invite others in our journey of grace. 
And so that is our mission statement. That's what we want to be as a church. And this was the slide I stole directly from Pat's sermon about this a few months ago. So let's go to our vision statement. And it says, impact the south side, form intentional relationships. And then the one I can't really see, and you probably can't see either, but it says, pursue spiritual transformation. It's right there in our vision. Then it says, expanding God's kingdom, empower the next generation. So, do you know what spiritual transformation means? Do you know what it means to you? Do you know what it means to somebody else? Do you even understand what we're being asked to do when we talk about spiritual transformation? Because it sounds like such a churchy word. I'm gonna be transformed by the spirit. And what I'm gonna say is, it's, it's possible. It's something that is real and tangible. So let me read to you a Wikipedia definition of this. So Wikipedia says, spiritual transformation involves a fundamental change in a person's sacred or spiritual life. So now you know. End of sermon, we're done for the day. <laughs> Actually, that does nothing for me. I, when I think about it, I think about it more like this. I think about it as the process of being led by the Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus. That's Paul's definition of spiritual transformation. But I'm still not sure that it, it's specific enough. Like, what is, it, what is it to you? What is it to me? How can we figure out how to even go down this path of spiritual transformation? So today I'm going to explain it to you, but I'm going to explain it to you, and Pat says a couple of weeks. I'm actually going to be here for five weeks. Don't tell Pat. Five weeks, this is a five-week sermon series, because I want to tell you four stories, and then I'm going to pull it all together. I'm going to tell you the story today about Jacob. Next week, we're going to talk about the story of Judah, and then we're going to talk about Abraham, and then we're going to talk about Jesus. You're going to say, that's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament, and that's right. I think we get a lot of things backwards in terms of trying to understand Jesus by not understanding what's in our Old Testament, especially in Genesis. So as we look at this, like I said, we're gonna also start and take a look at me because this is going to be my personal journey. Now, I know the series graphic that we used looks like The Godfather, and the tagline is, it's not business, it's personal. And it's not because I love The Godfather, it's because this is a very, very personal story about me, and I'm really putting myself out there, and some of you may say, you're oversharing, we don't need to know this much. But that's okay, because I think it's something that we can all learn from, we can enjoy, and we can be part of this process. So, let's go back to the beginning. This is me. You can see there, me as a little baby, up at the top, that was like my favorite baby picture growing up. The sad news is, I love baseball, so that's great. I've got this, I, I'm wearing a vest. That's very fashionable, just a vest, no other shirt or anything. So, but it looks too much like the Yankees, and I really can't stand the Yankees. You can see there that I'm, I'm a lover of the White Sox, 
and that, uh, you know, as I was growing up, you can see me in my Alex P. Keaton phase down in the lower corner there. If you're Family Ties fans, you will know what I'm talking about. And then uh, smack dab in the middle, you can see the great picture where I won the costume award at our last trivia night that was here at LSC. And so, um, but that's me, that's who I am. I was born on Valentine's Day in Niles, Michigan to Robert and Diana Wilkin a long time ago. <laughs> Hence why I'm an elder now. I'm, I'm old enough to be one. I went to Oak Manor Elementary, Ring Lardner High, uh, junior high, and graduated from Niles High School in 1990. I graduated from Grand Valley State University in 1995, and if you did the math, yes, it took me five years, not four. But I keep being told that that was actually what most kids were doing those, at that time. I'll give you an interesting story about me, and I'm just trying to tell you this because I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. So I was a computer science major, and I was at Grand Valley State taking a computer course of all things, and I needed to connect to a mainframe. And if you don't know what a mainframe is, it's a server, okay? And you couldn't just connect to it by clicking on something on your computer. You had to take one of those little floppy disks. Now, I didn't have the big floppy disk. I'm not that old. I had a little floppy disk that you would have to put into the computer and then reboot your computer. Now, probably everybody in this room knows what reboot means. I was a computer science major. I had no idea what they were talking about. I went in, I got the, the, the disk, I stuck it in there, I tried to boot it, it just wouldn't, I'm like, what is this supposed to do? I don't know what it's supposed to be doing. And so I actually dropped that class because I was so embarrassed to ask somebody what reboot means. I ended up taking it again the next semester and when I went up and asked for the disk, Somebody actually said, I said, hey, could you show me how to actually use that? And they came over, and they restarted the computer. If they would have just said, restart your computer, I would have known what reboot was. I'm, I'm a computer science major. <laughs> okay. I also worked at McDonald's, J.C. Penney's, painted houses, packed diesel engine parts and boxes, worked at Stanley Kovaleski uh, Stadium, where I met the love of my life. Um, I hung awnings, worked at Simplicity Pattern Company in Niles. Uh, I worked for, a, right out of college, I worked for a small warehouse software company. I worked for a furniture maker, and then I worked for Corporate Meyer, and then I worked, as I do now, at Johnson & Johnson. And I've been there for the last 23 years. Like I said, I met Sarah at the Cove back in 1991, and she was the first person who really introduced me to what the concept of Jesus and what that all meant. Um, now, here's a little bit of a history about my relationship with God. My mother and father didn't really go to church when I started, uh, when I started, when I was born. <laughs> and so, that's when I started. Um, I don't think my dad had much of a church background, but my mother, she kind of grew up as a Methodist, and both my brother and sister were baptized, and I remember thinking, why were they baptized, and I wasn't baptized? I don't understand what's going on here. Um, 
My mom had a falling out with her church. I remember talking about that. And the reason for that was she missed a couple of Sundays. And they called and said, hey, not how are you doing, not are you sick, is there something wrong with the family? It was, you know, if you still want to give, we would still be okay with taking your contribution or tithe or offering. And so it really turned her off. She ended up stopped going to that church, and I really didn't have a lot going on in terms of my spiritual growth as a child. So my only experience was television evangelists. And growing up in the 80s, we had some great ones, didn't we? <laughs> and even somebody as old as, you know, 9, 10, 11 years old could tell it, was, it seemed so fake. And it was so money-driven and just didn't seem like something I ever wanted to be a part of. So let me tell you really quickly about some of the things I, I love to do. So you can see I really like sports. Baseball was my thing, though. Like, I loved, I lived and breathed playing baseball. And I could do it just all the time. Um, I played at Thomas Stadium. And in Niles, baseball is just this great thing, especially when you get to play at a place like Thomas Stadium. It was so much fun. It was so enjoyable. I just really liked being a part of a team. And of course, I love technology. I did win a Stony this last year, uh, being the Better Call Saul Tech Award. I'm sorry, Larry, you probably should get it. <laughs> you are the tech guru here. I'm just the guy who was around so that they asked a question too. So, um, and, and, you know, I like figuring out how things work. And so, of course, that works really well with technologies. But then I also really like to do new things. I like playing the drums. I love to travel. Sarah and I go to all kinds of different places and just like to really figure out, you know, where to hike and where to do things. And we didn't really become hikers, I would say, until we were in our 40s. And it was something... We just really enjoy being out in nature together. And so, and I have down there at the bottom sermons. Maybe this is something I enjoy. Um, let's go to things I struggle with. Things I struggle with. I really take a long time to learn things, and it really bothers me. When I read, I like read things over and over and over again. It's so frustrating. I hate reading. Um, I have lots of health problems with my neck. I've had two neck surgeries. I've got problems with my lower back, my knees, my hips, my arms. Yes, I'm an elder. Um, I have a hard time figuring out where I fit in. And then I know the next one is one of those ones that you don't even like to say. I've struggled with those thoughts for most of my life. The first time I remember was in fourth grade where... It's not supposed to be funny, but it's kind of funny. My teacher was talking to us. Of course, fourth graders having potty humor kind of things going on. She's trying to explain to you, everybody hoops, everybody pees. It's, this, it's not that funny, so let's move on with it. But when she was talking about it, she said, if you didn't go to the bathroom for a day, you'd probably pass away. And so I actually tried to put it to the test. Obviously, I'm still here. I didn't last a day. I wasn't that determined. But it was something that I've struggled with my entire life. 
and it's, it's really hard at times. Um, my spiritual struggles, like I said, with television evangelists, I thought Christian families were weird. Did you ever look at Nate Flanders from The Simpsons? He was my definition of a typical Christian family at that time. I thought highly doodly, all of those sorts of things. Um, and then post-struggles after, you know, where I became saved and even, you know, my baptism, trying to figure out where I fit in, trying to see what my spiritual gift is. And I still struggle with these things. And it's been, heck, it's been way over 20 years. I like saying 20 years makes me feel a little younger, but it's been a very long time. So even though I grew up outside of the church, I was lucky and I got connected with the right people. And I'm lucky to have those right people to learn from. Of course, my mother, she married my stepdad. She was in Al-Anon, and so she started reading her Bible, and she started praying, and she started doing some things, and it gave me something to think about. Of course, then I met my wife at the Cove, and then I started talking to her, and I got a chance to, to figure out that maybe I don't understand Christianity the way it's supposed to be. Uh, after we were married, of course, well, I would say even before we were married, Chuck and Diane Barrington, they helped me see that Christian families weren't so weird. And then when I married their daughter, I found out, no, they're really weird. <laughs> Especially my brother-in-law, Sam Barrington, who taught me as much about Christ as anybody on this planet. Um, Another guy that was very dear to me, his name was Charles Young. He was the minister at the Southside Church of Christ in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And he told, taught me what service and caring for others were. Just a lovely man. I remember Don Finto coming here and speaking back in the early 2000s. And, and I remember he was the first time I'd heard somebody talk about the Jewish community and that Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. And that like, what? What are we talking about? He's a Jewish Messiah. I don't understand this. And then, of course, Lowell Kosak, who's been an elder here for a long time. And I remember just talking to him and hearing some of his sermons and getting me intrigued about the Old Testament and what all of this sort of meant. And now here's some of my favorite resources you can see on the screen. So Marty Solomon, he's spoken here, I think, two or three times, and just great lessons. And he runs the Baymaw Discipleship Podcast along with Brent Billings, and they do such great work. I love it. Uh, LF Beta, that's somebody that Marty actually recommended. He's a rabbi. He's an actual rabbi. He's not speaking to Christians when you listen to him, but learning from a rabbi is amazing experience because they know the Old Testament like we'll never know it. And we'll get more into that later. Of course, our Living Stones Church podcast, there are some great podcasts out there, but there's two in general that I just love, Ancient Inc. and uh, Bill Nye Reads the Bible. Those two were fantastic, and I just love them. And Lowell does one in particular on the Old Testament about chiasms and things like that. I just love it. 
Um, and then there's the Bible Project, and that's Tim Mackey's, uh, Dr. Tim Mackey's uh, Bible Project, and it has provided me with so much material and so much things to learn. They have a podcast, they have videos, they have individual classes you can attend. They basically have it all. So the good news is, now that I've got these neat resources, I've kind of learned it's okay to struggle. And this is why, as I get into this story, like I said, I know it's been a lot about me. After this, it's really going to focus on some of these stories, and then we'll circle back in week five. But I want to talk to you about the story of Jacob. He's one of our patriarchs of the faith. And so let's take a look at his start, <laughs> him being born. Um, let's talk about that and, and get back into the text, the text, because this is the important stuff. So let's start with Genesis 25, 19 through 26. This is the account of the family of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Armenian of Padam Aram. I'm telling you, I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm just a regular guy trying to read these words. Uh, so he marries basically Rebekah, and Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, now take note of this, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from, who, from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the, the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was covered with hair, or like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with him grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old, and Rebekah gave birth when Rebekah gave birth to them. So this on the outset doesn't look like a very interesting story. But when you dig into this, you can find out there's some very key things about Jacob that you don't really get. So what, what do you think in terms of Jacob when you hear that name and what you see? Uh, like I said, Jacob is one of the patriarchs of the faith. And it's very difficult for him to become that because he's not a firstborn son. Back then, firstborn sons got everything. They got a double portion from the family to take on the responsibility. So not only do you get the double portion of, of, of your father's stuff, but you also get double the responsibility of taking on the head of the household. Um, so in this story, you can clearly see Esau is first. And Jacob is grabbing onto his heel, like almost trying to pull him back in so I can be first. I want to be the firstborn son. And that's a really interesting story in itself because God often chooses not to use the firstborn. 
He's turning their world upside down with this change. It's not always the firstborn that has to be the one who gets everything. And so we already know from what we read that Rebecca knows that they will, um, that Jacob will be the one who is kind of the firstborn and that Esau's, his people are going to bow down to him. It kind of sounds like a Joseph story, doesn't it? That's something we'll talk about later on, but that's a recurring thing and theme in the Old Testament. You're going to hear these things that sound very similar over and over and over again. So what does Jacob actually mean? It's a name, right? So we know that Jacob is a name, but what does it mean? What, what is being said there? And so what I'll say is, if your name's Jacob, you're a wonderful person, and your name is beautiful, and I don't know why your parents named you Jacob, but it's a very, very, very good name, and it has nothing to do with what our Jacob in the Bible uh, went through when he was called Jacob. So let's put up what the meaning of Jacob is up on the screen. Hopefully you can see this. You probably cannot. So you can see here, this is the Version Bible online. And what I did was I clicked on this thing, this little side note by Jacob, and it gives you this information. Jacob means he grasped the heel, a Hebrew idiom for he deceives. So he was named a liar. He was named, you can't be trusted. He was named something you don't want to be called because now for the entirety of your life, somebody's gonna be calling you a liar, a cheat, a scoundrel, a person I don't wanna be associated with. And that is one of those things where you have to be careful when you name somebody or you call somebody something, names and things like that have consequences. So <clears throat> another thing that we wanna remember about the story that we just heard, like I said, was that Rebecca knows that Esau is going to be bowing down to Jacob. So we've got these two weird things that are kind of hanging in there, and that, that's one of the things you want to do with your Old Testament, all your scripture for that matter, is find those weird things that are there and ask questions about it. Why is it this way? What happened here? So let's look at kind of some different translations of the naming of Jacob. I think it's very important here, and you can find out some of these different meanings. So let's look at the NET first. The NET, that is the New English translation, it says, uh, Genesis 25, 26, when his brother came out with his hand clutching Esau's heel, they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. And so you can see here, they named him. Now, let's look at the CEB in Genesis. You can see here that it says, she named him. That's a little different. Not sure what that means exactly. But the only reason I knew this was because I listened to what Rabbi Foreman said on the LF Beta site. 
And LF Beta is this amazing resource that's on the internet. And just listening to, to Rabbi David Foreman speak about this, um, it really was changing for me because he speaks real Hebrew. Like, it's not his ancient Hebrew is not his first language, but he knows Hebrew. Like, he understands it. He studies it. So when he explains the story, he starts talking about Jacob being named, but not by Rebecca. But one thing I do want to back up just a second is, Rabbi Foreman has this thing that he calls the lullaby effect. And you've heard the story of Jacob over and over and over again, and we first start hearing about Jacob when you're a little kid at Sunday school, and so you think you understand this whole thing about Jacob and who he is. But that's the thing is, the lullaby effect means you're glossing over such great detail. You're not looking into what it's actually saying. And so there's a lot of stuff that gets missed if you, you, if you get fooled by the lullaby effect. So right now, I want to read to you from a transcript. Now, there's a lot of Hebrew in this transcript, so I'm going to not read kind of the Hebrew parts of it, but it's a transcript from a video from LF Beta. If you want to put that transcript up there, please. It says, now listen to the very next sentence, and there's a bunch of Hebrew there that Esau is Esau, that I know. It says, his hand was holding and grasping the heel of uh, Jacob, and the, he called his name Yaakov, that's Jacob. So you see, it was he. So who called his name, you see, is when you look at the verb, it's conjugating in singular, and since it's singular masculine, it's plain as day. It's plain as day. Not in those scripture readings that I just read to you, but it's plain as day that he was named by Isaac. And so... It's like, how do you find this stuff? How do you, it's because you have to ask questions. You have to dig into it. You have to find out why things are in the Bible the way they are. We miss so much in our Bible because of just translation and potential translation errors. <clears throat> so I trust Rabbi Foreman. I've listened to his, his discussions on these, on these uh, stories, and they're just amazing and the thing that he does um, is he points out here that Jacob was named by Isaac. So what does Rebecca know? Rebecca knows Jacob is going to be the one who's more the patriarch here, and Esau is not. But Jacob is called the liar. Okay, this is the patriarch. Our patriarch is going to be the liar. And so... Now, we don't know if Rebecca ever shared this information that she got from God about this to Isaac. Hey, Isaac, guess what? Jacob is supposed to be. No, that's not the way it is because quite honestly, Isaac preferred Esau. That was like his buddy. He was kind of a favorite. And then on the other side, Rebecca kind of liked Jacob more. Jacob was a homebody. He was there he wasn't, he wasn't out hunting and doing all of those things. He wasn't this manly man. And so 
<clears throat> so now, as we look at the stories, we've got that little bit of information to help us. So the big stories, right, for Jacob, the birthright and the blessing. Those are really the two big stories that you think about with Jacob. Um, and so, especially in his younger years. So when you think about it, you've got the blessing that happens in Genesis 25, 29 through 34. And in the story, Esau comes in, he's famished. Jacob's been cooking. Esau says, give me that food, I'm so hungry. And Jacob's just like, hey, give me your birthright. You can have some food. The birthright, right? So there's two things out of this. One, that's like, that's a weird story. We don't get that. We don't understand birthright in this day and time or this part of the world. So, but one, we find out Esau cares so little about his birthright, he's willing to sell it for some food. But two, we know Jacob wants it, right? He's the guy that tried to pull him back in so he could be the firstborn, and he wanted him in uh, to be the firstborn. And so we know is that more of Jacob's deceiving ways or is that just some God-given ambition that Jacob has that God saw from the very beginning? So, but we also know about the story of Jacob deceiving. And when Jacob deceives, you've got this picture in your head. Keely, if you could put up the picture. You've got this picture in your head. Again, this is the lullaby effect. This is that Rebecca and Jacob are going in to lie to, <clears throat> to Isaac so he can get the blessing. Now, we think a blessing today, we, we don't even really get this, but, but it's something that Isaac has probably prepared and thought about and wanted to do, but he's not supposed to give it. He's gonna give it to Esau, the firstborn. That's who's supposed to get it. But in the background, even though I love this picture, they both look so evil. They've got the master plan that they're going to go in there and they're going to do this to Isaac so that they can change everything. But Rabbi Foreman spins this in a way that really tells you more about this. So Rebecca has all of this information that she has. God has told her, Jacob is going to be the patriarch here, not Esau. And so Isaac's dying. How are we going to make this happen? What am I supposed to do? And Jacob, he's this homebody who doesn't do a lot of things, doesn't get out of the house. And so what is she going to do? She's going to encourage him. Go in, talk to your father, figure out what needs to happen so that you become where you're supposed to be, where God intends you to be. There's another lesson don't try to force something that God has said is going to happen because you're going to mess it all up. That's what happens. So what we, what we see here is she dresses him like Esau. They put on, you know, animal skins to make him hairy like Esau. It says here, it says in Genesis 27, 11, 22, Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but mother, brother Esau is a hairy man while I have smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. Now, if you look at that, 
Why would a mother want to bring down a curse on her other child? She doesn't. So, and why would he say, if they're both knowing that they're going and tricking him, that he would ask, wouldn't I be tricking him? So they're there, and Rabbi Foreman suggests, and I think rightly so, is that she is trying to build him up, trying to make him Esau-like, making him be a firstborn, be this person who you aren't, so you can get in there and get the blessing that you need because God says this is gonna happen. So, all of that being said, he goes in there and he falls back into his old ways. He's been called deceiver and liar for all of these years, and so what does he do? He lies and he deceives. And he gets the blessing, and then he runs out of there because his brother Esau's really ticked off, and Rebecca tells him, doesn't say, hey, you've got the blessing now, just hang out and everything's good. She's like, no, you better get out of here. Esau's going to kill you. Go live with Uncle Laban. So what does Jacob do next? Jacob goes, he's running for his life. He goes to Uncle Laban's. The funny thing is, is Uncle Laban outdeceives the deceiver. He tricks him into marrying his older daughter. Jacob has eyes for Rachel, Rachel. That's the Hebrew way of saying it. I can't say it Hebrew. Um, but he has eyes for her, but Uncle Laban tricks him into marrying Leah, which Leah means weak eyes. Weak eyes is a Hebrew idiom for she's not so pretty. <laughs> Rachel is lovely, and that's the one he falls in love with. So, but he marries both of them. They have kids. It's time to get out of there. So what happens is, is they run because they've deceived Laban. They're on their way out. They've stole some things from him. Rachel's kind of hiding it from him, but they know they have to get out of there, so they leave very quickly. And I apologize, I'm going so long. I'm trying to paraphrase a lot of this right now. Uh, so this takes us to the story of while they're on the run, where we get to see Jacob wrestling. And this is another famous story about Jacob. And Jacob, was he wrestling with a man? Is he wrestling with an angel? Is he wrestling with God himself? We just don't know. So let's look at Genesis 32, 22 through 28, and just read that story. That night, Jacob got up, looked at his two wives, his two female servants, his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of Jabok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and he was a man wrestling with him till daybreak. So it says here is a man. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched him in the socket, and Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name is no longer Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and humans and have overcome. So we don't know, did God wrestle 
with a man? Did he wrestle with an angel? We know that he wrestled with somebody that kind of equaled him in strength. They were wrestling and trying to, you know, it went till daybreak. Like they started, they wrestled a long time and it's kind of a stalemate. And so Rabbi Foreman likes to th tell you, this is what happened is he's wrestling with himself. He doesn't know who he is. He's been called deceiver all of his life. He needs an identity. He needs a purpose. He needs to be what God intended him to be. And so he may have been wrestling with himself. He might have been wrestling with an angel or the Lord. Maybe the Lord was just toying with him and when he's like, okay, this needs to be over and he hits him on the hip and boom, we're done. But what we know is he finally gets his name changed. His name is changed to Israel. What does that even mean? I don't know. What does Israel mean? But here are some things that we can take away just from what we learned in the story here is there's power in what you call people. It shapes them in ways we can never imagine. We know that lying and deceiving will not help you get what you want. It's most likely made things more difficult for Jacob to become Israel because he had to leave and go on the run for such a long time. First he went on the run from Esau, then he went on the run after that from Laban. Don't try to force things to happen for God. Rebecca and Jacob thought they could do and make what God said happen. But forcing the issue just caused pain and hurt within their family. It's also very interesting that often the text still calls Jacob, Jacob. When you talk about the patriarchs, it says our patriarchs are Abraham, whose name was changed from Abram to Abraham, but they call him Abraham all the time now, Isaac and Jacob. They don't say Israel all that often. Why is that? That's something good to study. Go do that later on today. <clears throat> but here's the good news. This is why the story is good news. It's good news because Israel means God contended wrestles with God, triumphant with God. So Israel, the name of God's tribe, his kingdom, his chosen people, what does that mean? It means God's tribe is named wrestles with God. God's kingdom's name is wrestles with God. God's chosen people are named wrestles with God. You are not going to feel in alignment with God 100% of the time of your life. And if you are, tell me how you do that. I have no idea. What, what do you do? You will not be in alignment with God. You're going to wrestle with God. The people he called is called wrestles with God. So why is this good news? You don't have to be perfect. You can struggle with your faith. You can struggle with who you are. You can wrestle with your identity, not knowing who you are all the time. You are exactly what God wants. You, you wrestle and grow with him. You don't just have this relationship. If you do, you're missing out on something. And God loves and has great things in store for you even when you struggle with him. So 
Here's a list of things I struggle with. We saw all of those in the beginning. I struggle with those still to this day, but what I would tell you is I'm okay with it. I have days where I can't get out of bed or don't wanna get out of bed, and I'm good with it. I talk with God, I ask him questions, I wanna know why this is happening, and I don't always get answers or like the answers I get, but that's okay. He created the universe, and I am here to work with him. So, as I continue to share my journey, I don't know um, all the things that, you know, I'm gonna talk to you about. What I can tell you is, though, is I still struggle with God, and I still ask all kinds of questions. And so next week, we're gonna talk about this guy named Judah. And Judah seems like this awful, terrible guy, kind of like a deceiver, but he's awful and terrible in another way. And we're gonna learn about that, and there's things that we can learn. But I would say for this week, just know it is okay to struggle, and you can just let that go and not feel like you are out of touch with God because he expects us to wrestle with him. I'm gonna call the band back up here and I would just ask that you bow with me and let's pray to our God who is so gracious with us as we struggle with him. Heavenly Father, I know we struggle to see you, to feel you, to be with you, and you're always there. That's why they call you the I am. You are the one that is there. You are always there, and if, if I'm not feeling you, it's not because you're not there, it's because I'm disconnected. And I know when I connect with you is when I ask you questions and you help me seek and find answers I just pray as us as a congregation, as we go through this study, that you help us figure out all of the wonderful things that you have in store for us, but that you make us okay with struggling with you. It is not only okay, it's what you have wanted us to be. You've named your chosen people, wrestled with God, and just help us be okay with that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. How about a hand for Paul? That was awesome. And he does have a gift for length. So, good job, Paul. Hey, um, I was asked to, or I saw that it was on for uh, the comments this week, and um, I was just thinking, this week, a lot of faiths, a lot of uh, denominations have what's called Lent. And so, I kinda was thinking about that, and what does that mean? And um, I do have a Catholic background. I was Catholic up until about age 12. Um, so I grew up with some of those things. But what is Lent? It's a, this is the first Sunday of Lent. Uh, it's 40 days leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. 
It's a time of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And I was like, what kind of word is that? No, Paul. But anyways, almsgiving is giving to others or giving to the poor. Um, prayer, we get that. Fasting, well, it's probably more than eating fish on Fridays. Um, and we can, do, we can do some fasting, and we can do some giving to others. All good things that we can do during these, these uh, next six weeks. So while we don't necessarily practice Lent, it's a good thing that all of us people of faith can do. I got to thinking about Jesus uh, leading up to the crucifixion. Wrestles with God? What do you think he was going through? Um, what torture it had to be leading up to that time with him knowing it was coming. Jesus knew of what was to come, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. The agony he faced was going to be more than physical. It would be spiritual and emotional as well. Jesus knew that God, God's will was to crush him, to allow him to be pierced for our transgressions and wounded for our healing. Jesus loves mankind, but his, humility, or his humanity dreaded the pain and sorrow. And he even wrestled with God, asking him, to, he asked his father, let this cup pass from me. But Jesus was faithful. He went through with a plan and was crushed by man through the crucifixion. He did this for each of us. So what can we do for him? Well, Lent, we can pray. We can intentionally fast as part of our prayers. And we can give to the poor or those that could use our help. We're now here to celebrate communion and to celebrate Jesus and what he did for us. At, here at Living Stones, we practice an open communion. Everyone's welcome because Jesus welcomed all of us. Um, it's a time to remember what Jesus did for us, freeing us from sin. It's our time to thank him and what he did. And as we come up, I'm going to say, let's tell Jesus and our Father that we love them and thank you for what they did for us. Will you pray with me? Father God, Lord Jesus, and Holy Spirit, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Jesus, thank you for going through with the crucifixion, even though you asked that the burden be taken from you. Thank you for your faithfulness. We ask that you help us to be faithful to you during this coming season. In Jesus' name, amen.